Lord, we just come before you. We ask that you bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us as we will search out what you want us to see from this. We just thank you for your word, that you care enough to tell us about yourself, and we ask you to lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. James 3, starting with verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in any, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth, that they may obey us, and we turn the, about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which they be so great, and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about by a very small helm whithersoever the governor lifts. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. <clears throat> I want to stop there because I'll look first off at this uh, James 3 verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. This literally is, be not many teachers. And this is something that needs to probably be said, because in many places, people want to teach. Whether they know what they're talking about or not, there's been, I've been in places where people want to teach, and sometimes they don't know anything about the Word of God. They don't know how to handle the Word of God. They don't know how to listen to God, even, and they're wanting to teach. And this word for masters literally means one on whom God, uh, on whom is the ability to teach or who thinks they have the ability to teach. So it has both a negative and a positive connotation in this, in this Greek word. But it says that we know that we as teachers will receive a greater condemnation. So the question is, why do teachers have a greater condemnation or greater judgment against them? Well, the first one reason is in Hebrews 13:7. Teen, excuse me. Obey them that have rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls, as they must give an account, for their, that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is profitable, unprofitable for you. So the first reason that the teachers are under greater condemnation is because they have the responsibility to watch the flock and give account. So when the teacher teaches, people, they are expected if they're teaching a godly message that the people will hear and listen and obey. And if you do that, then you're going to stand before God as a teacher and give a good account because you've done your job and people have grown. Now, if you're a bad teacher, and there's plenty of examples of God judging bad teachers, and teach things that are not godly, then you are still going to give account to, for the people that you're watching, but it is going to be an account for having done potential damage to their life. And teachers all have this place where they're at. If they care about the people they teach, they're going to study and study hard. They're going to study and make sure they're not teaching false doctrine. That does not release, we've said this before, it does not release the, the listeners for having not gone to the Bible and verified what they were taught. 
but the teacher is still responsible because there are going to be a handful of people that are not going to be good students and Bereans and go study the scripture to verify, have I been taught correctly? And the, and the teacher is definitely responsible for their life because, and I've seen this happen so many times, you get somebody who's grown up in church and some well-meaning Sunday school teacher taught the kids wrong when they were three, four, five, six years old. And, they, and you get an adult and they'll say, well, I was taught such and such in Sunday school. And I'm going, well, I'm really sorry you were taught that, but this is what the Bible says. And this is, this is a harsh thing because you have somebody who's believing something for a long period of their life that's wrong. And this can be a critical place. A leader is going to teach by word and by deed. Because we've already talked about so many times we actually learn more when we watch people because actions speak louder than words. You know, your actions are speaking louder than words is where we'll tell somebody sometimes, you know, you're telling me that you're to love people and then I'm listening to you tear people down with everything you say about them. And this is something we've got to be careful. We've got to not only teach verbally correctly, but live as teachers in a lifestyle that shows that we live what we teach. And we've all seen people who, who say one thing in the church and then you, you start watching them and they live totally different than what, what they talk about. And they may or may not be teachers, but it's just they share something and they tell you what God says and they're right on what God says and then you watch them totally live some other way. And a lot of times it'll work in, you know, we tell, we'll teach, you know, we'll say, well, we've got to love everybody, we've got to speak nicely about people, and then we start tearing people to shreds in our conversation outside of that. And it's very critical that we live what we teach because people are watching us. For parents, our kids are always watching us. And they want to know that we live what we teach, especially as Christians. When we tell them we're a Christian and we're trying to follow God, they're watching our life and saying, how closely do you follow God? And we're never going to be perfect, but every time we fail, that is a time that people look at us and say, oh, you're a hypocrite. And this is the sad thing. You know, we're going to have those accusations every once in a while because we're human. But if we're living a lifestyle that almost always draws that accusation, we've got a problem. If everything we do draws that accusation, we've got a major problem on our hands that we need to really ask God to help us fix our walk. And this is what James has been talking about up on the, before this in the three chapters. Are you living, are, we're on three, but chapter one and two was all about walking, walking the walk. You know, can you show me that you are a Christian and your faith is real by how you're living? And here he's saying the same thing. This is the same thing he's saying at this point. Are you living the same way you teach? And this is important for us. In uh, 2 Timothy 5, verse 17, it must be 1 Timothy, because there is no 2 Timothy 5. And it is 1 Timothy. I even wrote it 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that are labor in the word and in doctrine. For so the scriptures say they shall not muzzle an ox that treads on the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So again, he's saying the elder, the teacher, is held to a high esteem by people. And they should live worthy of that honor. And if they're not, 
they get the greater condemnation because they're worthy of double honor. If they're not living a life that's worthy of that honor, there's going to be a greater condemnation by God, but also by the world. How many times have we heard of some teacher on the radio or TV or maybe in a local church even who falls into sin and is driven from their church or falls into that condemnation for, for the sin they've lived in, they've fallen into? They're not worthy of the honor that God has said to give them. They're not worthy. And I'm not saying they just had one sin, but this is that continual. And this is the problem we have. All of us fall once in a while. But we should never live in a fallen state in a sin. But he's not looking for us to have a lifestyle. And this is when it says that adulterers and fornicators and thieves do not enter the kingdom of God. It's not just saying you did it one time, but you have that continual pattern of that lifestyle that you're not feeling convicted by that lifestyle and you're not being changed and you're not feeling guilty because of it and God is saying those people don't know him because if you knew him you'd be convicted of the sin and you would repent and this is something that we're looking at in Jeremiah 3 it says that God gives us pastors and this is true God gives churches, their pastors, their leaders. Who the one who chose the pastor? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. If you've got the pastor that God wants you to have, then it's God that gave you that pastor. But it's God that gives us our leaders. It's God that puts them in our, in our path. And he puts them in our path so that they have the freedom to be able to teach the whole counsel of God. And there's this thing about it, and not every pastor is good for any... It, for certain churches. I mean, they may be the best pastor in the world, but they might not be right for that particular church. It's where God has gifted them and the people God has put in the church with that pastor. And when you've got the pastor that God has called for you, God moves and great things happen. And if you pick the wrong pastor, and we've seen places where that's happened, you're in for hard times. But God is the one that chooses pastors. And then in, Ver in Jeremiah 23, 1-4, he tells, Woe to the pastors who take care of themselves and not their flock. So there's a, quite a responsibility for a pastor to take care of their flock because they're the under-shepherd. And they should really care about their people and not be the hireling. And Jesus said the hireling doesn't care about the flock. He's, he's not going to give his life for the flock. He's not... And we read about David when he was a shepherd, how he, you know, his boast to Saul was, I went out and I killed a bear when it attacked my sheep. I killed the lion when he, when he went after their, they were my sheep and nothing was going to attack my sheep. And that's why later on God called him the shepherd of his people. Because he took that same love for Israel and applied that love that nobody's going to harm his people. And this is the heart of a pastor has with his people. They'll teach, they'll correct, they'll edify, they'll, they'll instruct. But they'll also defend their church when, when the enemy comes in to try to, try to attack. And they'll pray and they'll, they'll go to war and they'll stand up to those who want to hurt the church. And this is God saying, woe to that pastor who's not that kind of a shepherd. And there are people out there, and I've seen various pastors out there, that they're just hirelings. They're there to make their money Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night and they go whatever it is they do the rest of the week and they're the ones that people look at and say yeah pastors have an easy job they only work one day a week and there are pastors out there that do that kind of work but they're pastors in name only 
Because if they were truly the pastor and shepherd of their flock, they're going to spend a lot of time in each message. They're going to spend time talking to their people. They're going to spend time edifying, building up, correcting sometimes. Sometimes there's a lot of correcting that a pastor does and just says, hey, you shouldn't be talking like that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this. This is the scriptural way of living. And you do it gently. You do it in love. You're not, you're not pounding somebody over with a sledgehammer trying to teach them. You're, you're gently doing it and trying to draw them into the, that area. Ezekiel 34 says that you know, the shepherds have been feeding themselves and not the flock. And again, there, we see that negative oftentimes where, and sometimes this is true of, unfortunately, televangelists, a lot of times are feeding themselves rather than the flock. And that's a scary thing. And we can't judge all of them. There are some good ones out there. But there are also those who are building up their, their big mansions that they live in and the nice car that they live in. We saw that movie, Brother Young, and the, their mega church guy who's going, I'm not more spiritual than you because I drive the, I remember the Jaguar Lamborghini that he said he drove, but, you know, or the mansion that I live in, it's God's blessing. You know, and this is the way the televangelists are quite often. You know, I've got... You know, give to us. We need help to spread the gospel, and they're they're siphoning off huge percentages of the offering so that they can have all their luxuries, and they've got their their assistant pastors that are all doing the same thing. And there's nothing wrong with getting paid to serve God, but there is a point when you're living way above the sheep, you've got a problem. If you're if you're living in a mansion and your sheep are living in the slums. You're drawing way too much money out of that out of that ministry. <laughs> so we see this going on that the shepherds are the one. First Peter five two tells us the shepherds have oversight of the flock, and this is what the true shepherd does. This is and this is why there's this greater condemnation. If the shepherd is not caring for the flock and letting them be destroyed, he's going to be answerable to God. For that occurrence happening. You know, if he's doing the best that he can to help out, then, then he's going to be protected and he's doing what he can. But this doesn't even just apply to pastors. This is fathers in their homes have a greater condemnation because they are the one in charge. They have a responsibility for protecting their family. And an answer to will have to answer to God for not protecting their family when God says, how come you didn't take your family to church? How come you did not have devotions with your family? How come you did not lead them to be closer to me? And God will say, I want answers. It doesn't mean that we're going to go to hell because of the, these things, but there will be loss of the, of the award, rewards we should have had. And this is when we stand before the Bema seat and God says, okay, pastors, uh, fathers, people in government, <laughs> Here, here's your answer, answer, answer. Why didn't you do, why didn't you do these things to protect? And he's gonna show you the rewards you lost because you didn't protect your family, didn't protect your church, didn't protect your nation, didn't protect whatever it is you're in charge of. And this is the thing about it. The leader is worthy of the honor and they're worthy of the respect if they're doing their job and God's gonna reward them for doing a good job, they're gonna get the rewards and they get the rewards for those who followed and did what they did or were supposed to. But there's also that place where there's greater condemnation. And this should scare anybody who teaches at any time is, God, am I 
living, teaching correctly? Am I in you? And I can tell you I've been teaching for an awfully long time and I've learned to change some of the views and I know for a fact that there are things that I've taught over the years that I now no longer quite believe. Are they critical salvation issues? Not necessarily, but I've led some people astray on minor, minor issues over the years. And all I can pray is God erase it from their memories. You've, you've grown me, erase it from their memories or put them into a teacher that's going to correct it at this point. Because I have grown. It's amazing to me as I've gone and studied how many things I used to believe that God has sometimes fine-tuned, sometimes said, well, you didn't believe correctly, let's get you taught correctly. And it's amazing. And sometimes it's because I listened to some teacher and I, didn't be, I wasn't a good Berean at the time and I just said, this teacher's always good, you know, been, been a good teacher and I followed their, followed their belief and then I've gone along and going, wow, hold it, that's not what I believe and I have had to change. This is why it's critical. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And as Peter said, be ready to defend what we believe. Because if I believe just because somebody taught me, I'm not ready to defend that. And I'm in a danger of teaching or doing things that aren't biblical. I need to get into God's word. And this is why I tell everybody, I want everybody to be good Bereans. When I say something, get into the scriptures and check it out. And every once in a while, I'll get an, e uh, an email saying, Pastor, uh, you know, you said such and such is this, you know, I can't find this, how, you know, or, or how is it true, or, or what, you know, what is, is it true, and I'll, and I, you know, every once in a while I had to correct it, and I even had to do that once here, where I said I gave the bad information, and here's what the, you know, here's what the real, here's the answer to it, here's what I said wrong, and here's what is corrected. Was it a major doctrinal issue? No. It was a very, very small, minute point that, but it was wrong, and it needed to be corrected. We need to be careful. We need to be humble enough that when somebody does challenge us, we go, oh, let me go check this out and verify it. And this is important. Are we able to be corrected? Are we entreatable? As Christians, we're supposed to be entreatable. When we do something wrong, we should be ready for somebody to say, hey, you know, you need to correct this area of your life, or you taught this wrong, or you... You're not living the way you should and people, and it goes against the flesh because the flesh immediately wants to say, who are you to try to correct me? You know, for every one of us do that, no matter where we're at, we're, who are you to correct me is our first thought. And we need to be entreatable and say, well, let me examine whether this is a true statement or not. And go back and start looking at our lives, looking at what we believe, look at what we've taught, and say, is it, is it true? Now, my teachers all know that lots of times I'm going to ask them when they say something, I'm going, I will ask them, where is that in the Bible? And for teachers, I ask that to them whether I know it's there or not sometimes because I want to know, do they know? And for others, if they tell me something and they go, this is what the Bible says, I may ask them, where? Where does it say that? Especially if I don't know it. I'm not, I'm not telling them at that moment that they are wrong. I'm just telling them, I don't, I've, I've not seen that in the Bible or I want you to tell me where it is so I can look it up. Because if I'm correcting them, it's not high enough on my priority list to go research out what it is that they said, usually, unless it's critical. If I say it and I've said it wrong, I'm gonna get into the word and double check my facts because it's something that I taught and obviously if I taught it, I thought it was important enough to, to bring out. So I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna check it out. I was debating with a guy in the prison just yesterday about a topic. And I'm going, well, I'm not, I don't see what you're seeing. 
And am I interested enough in the topic to go in and research it? No. Is he going to be interested enough in that topic to go research it? Probably. I may do a perusal over it just to see in case he brings it up the next time I see him. But it's not the number one thought in my mind. I teach too many other lessons to be worried about our little discussion that we had on a point of verse that has no real importance to anything in, in my day-to-day -day life. But this is important because we need to be willing to say, do I know what I believe and know why I believe it? And I've met many people that will say, well, I just believe it because it's, I believe by faith. Well, I'm very happy that somebody has that much, that much faith. I'm not one of them, and I've said that over and over. I am Thomas. I want to know that what I believe is true and that it is, you know, when I saw Jesus die and you told me he's alive, I'd be Thomas saying, well, you know, I think you guys have been smoking something over this last couple days because I saw him die, I saw him put, get put in the grave, and I'm not sure where you guys have been, you know, what you guys have been smoking here this, yesterday when I was not here, but, uh, you know, I've got to see. <laughs> and you know what, there was not anything really wrong with what he said because they saw they saw and he didn't because he wasn't at the right place at the right time. So but there was nothing wrong in him saying, you saw, I need to see before I'm going to believe. Because they would have done the same exact thing if they had not been there and it had been the other way around. And Thomas had been the one that Jesus showed up to and he said, hey, I, Jesus was here. I, I saw him yesterday. And they're going to go, yeah, right. So we want to keep that in mind. It's so important. How, how are we teachers? Are we going to be teachers? If we're going to be teachers, we need to make sure our life lives up to that standard. And the other side of that is, in reality, all of us as Christians are teachers. People are watching us. If we open our mouth and share that we're a Christian, people are watching us. Our neighbors are watching us if, they, if, we, if we say we're a Christian. They're looking to see, are we having a wild party at our house at once a month like they do? Are the police being called to our house because of the party or the fighting with our spouse? Do they see us go to church? Do they see us have calmness in our, are we friendly with them or are we attacking everybody in the neighborhood? All of these things are being looked at. How are we living? Are we living what they think a Christian life is? Now the problem with the world is they have an inflated idea of what the Christian life is all about. And this is you know, they expect us to be perfect, and we're not going to be perfect. We're going to fail them in many areas. But that's just them, and this is what Jesus said. The world hated, hated him. They're going to hate us. Peter tells us that we're going to be, suffer for Christ, and when we do, to rejoice. And this is the thing I keep sharing with people. We need to prepare our hearts that when we suffer for Christ, we rejoice. And that's what the disciples did so much in the, books, in the book of Acts especially. They would get beat. You know, and I love the story of the Philippian jail. Paul and Silas are beat for preaching the gospel, thrown into jail, and at midnight they're singing praises to God. They're singing hymns and praise songs to God. And I don't know if they could sing or not, but you know, they were singing in the middle of the night, waking up all the other prisoners, keeping them awake. And then Earthquake comes and, and unlocks it and they can leave. The, the jailer is ready to kill himself because he figures out the door's open, the chains are off, everybody's gone. And Paul says, no, we're all here. And he ends up getting saved. But they were rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Not because they were beat. They were not crazy people. They did not like 
getting beat. They just said, we're getting beat for Jesus' sake. So we're going to praise him. So often I hear people, when, they, when bad things happen to them, they're moaning and groaning about the bad things that are happening. And it's like, well, what do you expect? You're, you're, you're lifting Jesus up. You're sharing Christ. Do you expect not to be troubled? You expect not to have hard things happen to you as you open your mouth for Jesus? We need to have that expectation. When God is moving forward, Satan is not going to say, oh, well, we're just going to let God take territory from me. He's going to come against the movement of God. And that means whether it's individual that we're moving forward for God or as a church that we're moving forward with God, Satan is going to come back and say, no, I'm not losing this territory. We're at war. When you're at war and you go forward into the enemy's territory, the enemy doesn't just say, oh, well, I lost that territory. They send troops to take that territory back. And that's the way war is. Sometimes you fight over the, the, whole, the same, the same uh, field five or six times in a, over a month or two's time because you move forward, the enemy pushes back. You move forward, the enemy pushes back. And eventually one pushes and doesn't, and doesn't re lose it again. But that's the way that war is, and we are in a spiritual war. The enemy is not just going to say, oh, God's taken this away from me. I'm just going to, I'm going to go fight over here where there's no battle. He says, I'm going to take back my territory or try to take back his territory. And this is why we have to always remember we are in a battle. And this is a battle that we're in. And we will be in a battle for our entire life. Until we go to heaven, we will be in a spiritual battle. And we need to be aware that we are in a spiritual battle. Because if, if we're thinking in terms of being in a spiritual battle, we start understanding when hard things come back our way. We watch God go forward and we get attacked. It's just the way it is. It was amazing during VBS to watch how Satan was not wanting us to go forward. People getting sick, things going wrong, things happening, you know, families attacking and, and issues going on in families. All these things were going on. Why? Because we were presenting the gospel to eight kids. And you know, eight kids is not a lot for most churches, but that's almost three times the number of kids we had last year when we had three. So we had over 200%, but not quite 300% increase in kids that we were preaching the gospel to. Satan does not like that. Even though it's only a small number of people, he's not going to like that activity going forward. And he's going to come against us. We've shared. We're on the internet. We're talking to thousands of people each month. Satan is not going to like that in our church. He's going to try to keep things from happening. He's going to try to create dissension. He's going to try to cause problems within the church to try to break things up so that things can slow down. We need to be on our guard and realize these things are going to happen. We need to be praying so that they don't happen. And because prayer is our weapon, our defense. God, as we're moving forward, we ask that you protect people's hearts. You let them know they're in a battle so that we don't see divisions happen. We don't see these problems happening and drawing people away. Because people will draw away for whatever reason. Sickness is a good way to get people to stop coming to church. You know, whether it's real sickness or just apparent sickness. It can be, you know, how many times do you get up on Sunday morning and you just don't feel good? Now that doesn't happen to me very much anymore because I a long time ago decided I'm going to church. 
I'm going to church unless I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to church. And so Satan does not attack me much on Sunday morning with pain anymore because it doesn't, it didn't work and it doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying that if you wake up and you're deadly ill and you're, it's obvious you have pneumonia, you know, you have the flu and you're coughing all over the place and, and sneezing and throwing up, don't come to church and give it to everybody in the church. But if you're waking up and you're just a little achy and in and pain, it's amazing how often those aches and pains start disappearing the closer you get to church and the more time you spend with God's people. And again, if you're so bad and you're crippled up and you're, you can't move, stay home. I mean, it, there are times when it is real. But it's also times when Satan will attack. When my kids were younger and we were getting ready to go out the door, it would be right then that the baby would poop their diaper or, or spit up all over everybody just as you're trying to walk out the door and you have to re-clean everybody up. And, and you know, uh, it, how many times did the husband and wife get into an argument on the way to church? <laughs> you know, all these little things that Satan tried to do to make sure that you weren't ready to listen to God when you got to church. And this is the critical thing. It's all spiritual attack. It's all spiritual battle. And we need to keep those things in mind. When these things are happening, it's like, okay, God, I'm looking forward to whatever you're trying to show me today because Satan really doesn't want me there today, so you must, you must really have a message for me today. Again, the attitude we have toward us. When things are going wrong and we look at our life and say, well, I haven't done a lot of bad things, so it's not being punished or getting consequences for what I'm doing. God, thank you for this. We're in a battle. I'm looking forward to what Satan is trying to keep me from, from experiencing today because you must be doing something, getting ready to do something great, God. God, I spoke about you and I got attacked and beat up and, and, and made fun of and people made me feel little, but thank you, God, that I suffered for you. All of these things is how do, are we looking at it from the spiritual side of things? Or am I just saying, oh, woe is me, everything's going wrong. And you know what? A lot of Christians are doing that. Oh, woe is me, I'm just, it's miserable being a Christian. Every time I talk about God, bad things happen. And you know, when you're going to have that attitude, you're going to have a lot of bad things happening to you because Satan says, I've got this person defeated. You know, hey, hey, you little, little demon, you just make sure bad things keep happening to them. You know, give them the flat tire. Make them feel a little sick, you know, give them a rejection that people don't like them. You just keep them feeling bad and wallowing in their self-pity. And then someday you get that area and then, oh, thank you, God, you're, you're, I am running into opposition because I'm in a spiritual warfare and Satan does not want me to go forward. But you've got some blessing for me, God. Thank you. All right, God, I, I gave this and they made fun of me. I, thank you, God. I was, I was representing you and the world hates me. Thank you, God. I'm worthy of suffering for you. We keep in mind that we're suffering because of him. Not because we've done wrong, but because the world hates him. And we've got to keep this in mind. This world is not our home. In the Hebrews, it said that Abraham was looking to a home not of this world because he was a pilgrim. And we are pilgrims. We are ambassadors. This world is not our home. We should never feel at home in this world because it's not our home. The TV shows are not of our world. The movies are not of our world. The music is not generally of our world. When we're purposing, we can have something that's godly, but the everyday stuff around us should never feel like it's home because it's not. It's not godly. It's not righteous. 
and we're looking for our home in heaven. And this is what I've shared with several people in this last week. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the day that I get to go home. You know, whether it's by death or by rapture, I don't care. But I'm looking forward to the day that I go home. But as long as God's allowing me to teach his word and to build others up and to edify and, and teach, I will stay here. I'm like Paul. I'm longing to go home, but it's better for me to be with you here. And as long as I've got an audience that God is allowing me to teach and to watch them grow, I want to be here. The day that I can't teach, I sure hope God takes me home because I don't have any other reason to be here once I can't do that. But while I've got something to teach and say and speak, then I'm looking forward to being able to teach, whoever that audience might be. We talked the other, you know, just the other day about Paul having his captive audience chained to his wrist were two guards every four hours, and he had a captive audience to, to talk to. He would preach and teach to everybody that came in, and then when they weren't there, he'd preach and teach to the guards. You know, that is the right attitude. We're in a spiritual war. Satan is trying to get me down, but I've got two people here that need to hear the gospel. They wanted to kill him, but he didn't anyway. So we've got all of this going on out there. How are we looking at it? Are we realizing that we are in a spiritual battle? Are we staying prepared? Are we looking for those opportunities just to share? And that doesn't mean we're going to share the gospel with every single person we come in contact with. We probably, each one of us probably should share the gospel with more people than we do, okay? But not every single person it needs to. And, and when I've shared with this, you know, I talk about being with other Christians and wondering how long is it going to take them to bring God into the, into the story? Does that mean we talk nothing about God? No. We can talk about different things, cars, sports, hobbies, whatever. But is God part of your conversation somewhere? You know, especially if it's more than five or 10 minutes. If you speak 10, uh, 20, 30, 40 minutes with somebody, an hour with somebody, is God gonna be part of your topic at some point? Probably should be if he's, because it says out of the abundance of our heart, we speak. When you talk to somebody and I've talked to some Christians at times, and I, and I start to bring up God. Oh, no, I don't want to talk about God. I, that tells me a lot about this person who's supposed to be a Christian. You don't want to talk about God. Why not? And I'll often be that blunt with them. Well, why don't we want to talk about God? Well, you know, that's a Sunday thing, or, you know, that's a, you know, this just isn't the right place to talk about God. I'm going, it's always the right time to talk about God. Okay. Uh, now, I'll talk about sport. I'll talk about all kinds of different things, but, you know, are we bringing God into the situation? Is he important enough? And I know there's been a theme that we've been on quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, but it's, I, I'm sensing we need to prepare. I'm seeing hard and dark times ahead of us very soon. We need to prepare our hearts that hard times are coming. We may be like the disciples being jailed for our beliefs, being physically hurt for our beliefs. We need to start preparing our hearts to understand God never promised us a rose garden. Now, for years and decades, the, the Western culture church has been preaching, come to Jesus and everything is going to be all hunky-dory. You're going to be blessed. I don't know where they got that message from. It's the message you hear on most televangelists. You know, give God and he's going to give you 100% 100, 100 back and you're, and you're going to be super abundantly blessed financially. Well, yes, that's partially true. We're going to be blessed financially, but it also is blessed for in a lot of other ways when we give to God. He says he will pour out the blessings of heaven 
And that's not just financial. It could be the peace he gives us because we're supporting him. It could be just the idea of I am helping these other people less fortunate than the, and by my, my tithes and offerings and they're being helped. But God does promise he'll meet all our needs. The only problem with us in America are we mix needs and, needs and wants up all the time. God, I, I want more of this. And God says, well, you've got plenty. You've got, you had three meals today, and that's more than most of the world has. You have a roof over your head, which is more than most of the world has. You have electricity in your house, which is more than most of the world has. You have clean, fresh water in your house, which is better than most of the world has. You've got a sewer system that, that runs, your, runs your waste out of your house without you having to carry it to a dumping ground, which is more than most of the world has. You can call your friends up on the phone, which is more than most of the world. You understand what I'm saying? We as Americans have, take for granted what, what needs are. Most of the world is happy having a bowl of rice, a cup of rice in the morning, and a cup of rice at night with maybe a couple ounces of meat. And we're looking, we've got to have a great big bacon, eggs, and, and toast, and cereal, and milk for breakfast. And then at lunch, we've got to have our, our sandwiches, and soup, and, and drinks. And at dinner, we have to have, especially in America, we have to have our big chunk of meat with vegetables and, and potatoes. And if we don't have our three meals in a day, something's wrong. Dinner, and then supper. And then, and then and dessert, and then our dessert afterwards. Yeah. But this is, we look at this and say, it is, is it wrong to have all that stuff? Not necessarily, but they're not needs. Those are actual great blessings that we have. The, a world where most of, most, of the, uh, most of America have a roof over their head and all the utilities in their house is a blessing to many in the world. There are many in these countries that are living in the, in the uh, junkyards underneath some corrugated box and that's their house. That's where they live. Many kids live in those environments, and that is the way they live. And they have to go out and try to find food, sometimes in the junkyard, sometimes by begging, and hope that when they come back, somebody hasn't taken their, their box away that they were living in. And they're, and they're following God, and that is, and they're just happy having the box. They're happy when they get their little bit of food that they get, because God is keeping them alive and meeting their needs. And we're here in America saying, God, our needs are a lot higher than anywhere else in this world. And we need to be careful because there may come a time when we as Christians will be looking at, God, I just want to have some food today. God, give me something to sleep under tonight because of the persecution that was going on. James understood this. Remember, we've talked about James is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. A Jew who becomes a Christian is ostracized and eliminated from their family. Even in his day, they would lose their home. They would lose their business because nobody would come to their business. Even other Christians that they'd come, they didn't have anything to give them anyway, so they would be giving away their stuff to them if they helped them. This was all what was going on. This was what the life that James was dealing with. This is why early on he has such a bitterness in his voice about the rich man being esteemed and given the place of honor because all he knows about the rich is they're hurting the, hurting the Christians. There are those rich in the church, and they were giving, and they were supporting, and they brought people into their homes. And you know, there's going to be a time very soon where Christians will probably join together in, in, in homes because they have no other options. Because they don't have anybody that went to them. They don't have a job to be able to pay their mortgage or to pay their, 
pay their rent. And it'll be up to other Christians to say, hey, you know, come on in, we're gonna help you. We're going to help you get, you know, try to survive while you're trying to get a better position. It's not far off. We can see it. We're seeing the hatred toward Christians right now in the media. If you go on the internet and look at any column, any comments on something that's Christian, you'll see the hatred of Christianity that's out there. We're almost hated as much as Jews are. And Jews are still hated a, bunch, a lot more than Christians, but it's getting very close. And there's a huge hatred for Jews right now. Anti-Semitism is growing very quickly, if it ever totally disappeared, but it is coming back with a vengeance. And Christianity is not far behind it. Why? Because we represent God. We stand for God. And Satan hates that stance. So he's bringing the world against us. Why does the world hate Christians and Jews? Because we have a standard. We say that God sets some rules. And God expects us to follow those rules. And the world is trying to tell us, well, there's no rules. Rules? Who, 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 who's important enough to give rules? And their whole idea of no absolute truth is that basis of it. We say God gives us absolute truth, and they say truth is whatever you think it is. We're seeing this going on right now. I listened to, on Family Talk, James Dobson was commenting about how right now in our government they're saying we have the freedom to worship. Not the freedom of religion, which, is, which we're guaranteed in the Constitution, but we have the freedom to worship. And you might not understand the difference of that, but when they say we have the right to worship the way we want, that means when we're in our church, we can do whatever we want. If I'm in my house, I can do whatever I want. But as soon as I step out into the public world, I no longer have the freedom of religion to apply God's rules to my everyday life because they believe I have the right to worship. They're redefining words just as they've always done. And they're taking away a freedom of religion, which means I can live with God the way I want 24 seven, 365 days a year to I have the right to, when I come inside my church to worship however I want, but as soon as I step out of the church, I can't live the way I think God wants me to. And that's their definition they're trying to change. We need to be careful about this. We need to be able to start even letting others know that our politicians are trying to redefine our rights and our freedoms. Because if they get this little tiny change out into the open, it affects us. This is why they can come up to the to the baker and the photographer who doesn't want to have any part of a homosexual wedding and say, you've got to do that. We don't care what your religion says about it because you're not worshiping right now. You're running a business. Okay, and this is the critical difference on this. This is why that word is such an important word. We need to make sure that they stand on what the Constitution says. We have the freedom of religion, not the freedom to worship. And they're trying to make the two words the same in people's minds and ideas. And we've got to be careful. We've got to understand we have a freedom of religion, which means we may need to be writing our, our leaders and saying, hey, we've got the freedom of religion, not worship. So they understand that there's a difference. We need to be able to stand on that because God, it's God's truth that we have a freedom to, of religion. As the government changes it, then the right government has the right to change it just as they did in the disciples' day. They said, no, you can't preach Jesus. What did they do anyway? They preached Jesus. They also took the punishment for disobeying the government's rules. And we're going to be having to do the same thing. 
the funny thing is, as we watch what's happening in our world, it's no different than it was in the first century. You became a Christian, you lost your business. If we try to bring our Christianity into our business, the government's going to say, no, you can't. We're going to lose our businesses because we're trying to run them as Christians would run their business. And this is, we're going to see more and more of it. And it's just bringing back what's always happened. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. We keep saying this, and I'm just showing you how everything we're going through today is not new. It is what has always happened. And we want to keep this in mind. When we stand for God, Satan is not going to just let it happen. He's going to push back. And he's going to try to change things and try to give, make things difficult for Christians. And there's going to be, we're, we're going to lose businesses. We're going to lose our jobs because we dare to take a stand on truth. And this is important. There is truth. We need to let the world know there's truth. Because if Christians give up truth, we have nothing to stand on. And we won't have a chance of bringing back revival if we give up truth. But no, there, there's going to be the day coming where it will be against the law to share the gospel of Christ. And then it won't be just Christianity, you know, when it first starts. It'll be just like the communist world, where it was against the law to teach religion at all. Why? But especially Christianity, because it's the truth. But it's coming. It's coming. We have hate speech right now that are out there. And I don't under, I've never understood the idea of hate speech. I mean, if you're going to attack somebody for something, it's all hate speech. But it, it's the idea of, in Canada right now, if a pastor in a pulpit says, preaches that homosexuality is a sin, they can go to prison. We in America have patterned our hate speech after the pattern of the Canadian hate speech laws. With when it was coming through in the 80s and 90s, no, this will never be used against you pastors when you preach God's God's word. Well, why not? That's exactly what you told the Canadians when you, before you started putting them into prison. And if you live anywhere where you're close enough to listen to, to American evangelical broadcast and Canadian evangelical broadcast, if they're speaking on homosexuality in America, they will have something else playing on the Canadian radio stations because it's against the law for them to, to say anything against homosexuality in Canada. It's hate speech and you can be arrested. And so you, if you live up on Washington you, or, or northern New York or any of those places nearby and you listen to both sides, you will hear a different message that day from the same ministry because it's against the law for them to say anything that, that Canada qualifies as hate speech. We are really close to that in America. Okay, If they continue to work on this difference between freedom of religion and freedom of, of worship, we're going to see them coming into our doors. Iowa, Iowa right now is fighting this battle where they're being told by the Labor Commission that if they say anything against homosexuality, even in their services, because they are employers of people, they can, go to, they can be charged with hate speech and, and violating labor law. This is going on. This is the changes that's happening in America right now in the battles we're facing. I need to ask you a question afterwards. Okay. So we are sitting in a place where Satan is moving. But the exciting thing about it is it's not new. It's what the first century church went through. It's what many of the prophets went through. 
when they were in a evil, idolatry-worshipping nation of Israel or Judah when they would have the wrong king, and they would stand up and say, God says he's going to bring judgment because you've turned your back on him. Many of them got killed because they were speaking treason as far as the king was concerned, that they would say that God is going to come and judge you, and, God, and they would say, you're, you're speaking treason, you're going to die, and many of them died because they spoke up for God. We're not far from that point. Every one of the apostles, except for John, died a martyr's death. And we've talked about it, and it wasn't for lack of trying that John didn't die a martyr's death. They tried poisoning him, they tried boiling him in oil, they sent him to a criminally insane asylum so that maybe the inmates would kill him. And he still did not die on any of those things and, and finally was released and, and died in Ephesus as the bishop of Ephesus. He's the only one that didn't die a martyr's death. We are probably facing a martyr's death in, time, in this coming time. Many Christians and Jews died the martyr's death in, in, in Germany under Hitler because they would say, you're wrong, this is not scriptural. And they died, sometimes not in the concentration camp. Sometimes they just were killed outright for their stance. But if they were sent to the concentration camps, they, were, they would die. This is where we are at now. Right now in this world, millions of Christians are martyred every year. Every year, millions of Christians are martyred in this world. And we barely hear a word about it, unless you read the right magazines and, and write, and write uh, blogs about it. The Voice of the Martyrs is always talking about the hundreds and thousands of people every month that are killed because of their Christianity. We've been very fortunate in the United States not to pay with our lives. It's going to change. It's going to change. Probably sooner than any of us want it to change because we see everything being lined up against us. The hatred of Christianity, the hatred of, of people who have absolute standards. We're seeing it. It's just around the corner that we're going to see the judgment come upon these people and in the process come people attacking Christians here in America. And we need to prepare our hearts. Get rid of the Western, this Western gospel that everything's going to be good. You know, if you're serving God, there's no problems. We're going to start seeing this. And I just, it's on my heart. It's on my heart to keep bringing up this warning. It's sooner than we think. It's sooner than we think that this is coming. And we need to prepare ourselves prepare ourselves spiritually and mentally that we may pay with our lives. We may pay with our freedom. We may be in jail for taking a stance for God. And I've shared with you, as a teenager, I always thought I was going to go to jail for being a Christian. And I didn't expect to be in Russia or China. I expected to be here in America. And now I look and say, I could easily be in jail. What sends us to heaven and hell? What do we do with Jesus? Not what do I think about homosexuality, not what do I think about uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, not what do I think about baptism in general, not do I go to church every time the doors are open or not, not do, not do I read my Bible every day. Wrong None of those things are heaven and hell issues. Some born-again Christians probably believe that there's no problem with homosexuality. They're not in their word, they're not taught well, but that's not a heaven or hell issue. 
Now, it is a serious issue as far as I go, as far as how do you live and how do you no, respond right to people. Right and, wrong. right and wrong. Many people who are not into that same position. And I know because I've dealt with a lot of people on that side. I've, I've done a lot of work on colleges and intellectuals who claim to be Christians and know how they think. They've gone and they believe, probably deep down in their heart, they know it's wrong and their conscience is telling them it's wrong. But when you have been told something so often, so many times, you start to believe it. Why do so many Christians believe in evolution? Because we send them to these stupid public schools that teach them that evolution is true. They watch on TV that evolution is true. And their churches don't speak very often about creationism. And so they believe that evolution is true because they've heard it so many times and they have not gotten into the word of God and their churches don't stand up for the creator of the universe so that many Christians will believe in evolution. Then when they hear that God created, okay, God's created it, but they've been on the bottom side is evolution is true. The Bible tells me that, you know, so when I'm with Christians, I got to remember that ev uh, evolution is false and creation is, is, but when I'm with the rest of the world, I got to remember that that's all a fable and, you know, and they get very confused because they're trying to keep two diametrically opposed views in their head rather than going and saying the Bible is true. And this is why I teach the Bible and I want to teach that it's true. And it may seem, seem like I'm hammering on, a, on the same dead horse on these things when I come and say creationism, we've got to believe that God created the earth in seven days. Or if that's not true, then none of the book is true. If he did not create the world in seven days, as he said he did, none of this book is worth anything and I might as well throw it away because it's worthless. Okay. Not if, human day either. God day. No, no, no. The seven days, 24-hour days, uh, seven 24-hour days, because that's what it says. Evening and morning was the first day. Evening and morning was the second day. Evening and morning was the third day. He was talking about 24-hour days. Hours, yeah. He wasn't talking about it. God says it could be a thousand. A day is a thousand years. No, he said more evening to morning. A day was day one. Evening to morning was day two. He very clearly made it very clear that he's saying 24 hours each day. And so, but again, we get these Christians trying to jumble all the facts and say, well, we're going to try to twist these into something else. And no, it says what it says and it is what it is. And if it's not true, none of this book is worth betting my eternity on. If the very first story is not true, I can't trust any of this book. And I might as well just go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die because that is all that's left. If this book is not true, none of the other books have no contradictions in them. So none of the, none of the other religious books are worth following. So that, means so that means no religion is worth following if the very first story of this book that has no contradictions in it that I have ever seen in 44 years, if the very first story is not true, it's, then this book is not worth living by and there's no, there's no hope. But I know that that is true. It fits. It fits the evidence to know that this is true. The flood of Noah answers many of the issues that, that science will say fits the evolution pattern and answers lots of questions. So when I say match the Bible up to the evidence and it says, good fit, all right, the first stories are true, now I can have trust in the rest of the Bible. But as soon as Satan can try to make the first stories not true, and we have a book that's not worth believing. And I'll hear it, believe me, I, because I've taught creation even before I was a pastor, 
well, you don't have to believe in creation to be a Christian. Well, I guess you're right. You probably don't have to believe it, but I don't know why you would believe in Christ if you don't believe the rest of the rest of the yeah. story. Because why would you believe in Christ if you don't believe that the Bible is true? And this is the critical area that we live in. We must believe that every word of the scriptures is correct or we have nothing to stand on. And if we have nothing to stand on, why are we trying to follow Christ? Because it's just, this book is him. In the beginning was the word, and the word, word was God, and the word was with God. And that's very important for us to understand. He was in the beginning, he was with God, and he was the word. That's what it says in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts out with him being in the word. First, John starts out with him being the word. John really emphasized it is God who is the word, who is true, and that we have to believe in him. And if we, gonna, if we want, don't want to believe in him, I don't know what we're going to believe in. And, that, and this is very important. And I have people who say they're Christians, but they don't believe that Jesus was the son of God and, didn't, and died for their sins. And I'm going, well, what are you believing uh -huh. on? What basis do you say you're a Christian if you don't believe the most important, I mean, that, that's not even an idea of evolution to creationism. That is the very founder that we're supposed to believe in, and you're telling me you don't believe he's real and you're calling yourself a Christian? Where, where are you putting yourself? How are you coming with this, with this thought? And we need to be able to understand every word is true or none of it's true. And that's critical for us. And this is why I hammer on Marriage is one man and one, one woman for life. Creation, not evolution. God set the standards. He taught people how to come to him. All of these things, that, and we're getting ready on Sunday morning, we're gonna start what I call the foundation series. We're gonna go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because Genesis, those first 11 chapters in Genesis give us the foundation for everything that we do in, in our walk with God. It's the first mention of everything family, God, creation, his power, everything is in that very first 11 chapters is the foundation. The first mention of almost everything there is in the scriptures is in the first 11 chapters. And we're going to lay the foundation out again. Then we'll go back to Philippians, but we're going to lay the foundation again because it is so important that we lay the foundation because if we don't have a good foundation, what are we, what are we built on? And this is critical. If the foundation is not sound, the building doesn't stand. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the, your love, your care. We ask that you guide and lead us in everything. Lord, we thank you that you give us teachers. You give us the, the position that we're following. And we just thank you for all of that in your son's name. Amen.